let us let us open our time with a word of prayer. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, each person gathered here. Uh, Lord, we are in need of um, of you always. We need to hear from you, and uh, we need your your spirit to guide us. Uh, I need your spirit to guide me. So please help us this morning to to think about what you have said and what it means for us uh, at this time in this day. And we ask that you would make us more like Jesus as you promised you would do with your word and by your spirit. Please teach us this morning, uh, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness and make us uh, more like Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we continue our series on Exodus 14, I want to uh, speak with you about uh, the Lord's leadership from uh, Exodus chapter 14, the Lord's leadership, to the end that we would be faithful and committed to Jesus when tested. Um, let's, let's read through this uh, passage and... Um, talk about it. Exodus 14, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp, encamp in front of Pi-hahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea, by Pi-hahiroth, in front of Baal-zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. 
The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. I want to stop there uh, and and read the last portion uh, later. But um, I want to talk to you about the Lord orders all your circumstances for his glory to be revealed. It's interesting, there's probably a running joke that you are probably familiar with that um, people said, well, you can't trust this account because there's only six inches of water there. And uh, they were saying this to a believer, and the believer said, well, praise the Lord. And they said, well, why are you praising the Lord? I just proved to you that this couldn't happen because there was only six inches of water. And he says, I'm praising you, praising God because God drowned the whole Egyptian army with six inches of water. There have been repeated um, accounts of where actually they crossed. There's uh, several different places they could have crossed. But um, Jesus uh, believed that this was a true historical account, and so you can't beat Jesus. Um, uh, So uh, we want to look at these portions of Scripture, the first 18 verses here, under the subject of the Lord orders uh, all your circumstances for his glory to be revealed. And you see that uh, mentioned in the first four verses. You see it also mentioned in uh, the last uh, five verses that uh, were read. And um, this, this portion of God's word is bookended by um, God saying that he's going to get glory over Pharaoh, all of his chariots. And, um, and he specifically, uh, geographically locates Israel in a, in a, vulnerable, a vulnerable place, a place where they would be pursued by their enemy, um, a place where Israel uh, would have to exercise faith uh, rooted on uh, uh, knowing something about God's past. They had just come out of Egypt. They saw what God did to the Egyptians in Egypt. They saw the plagues. They knew God's ability, so they had something to go on. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 116 said, I love the Lord. I, I will, I will, I heard, I, the Lord has heard my voice, and therefore I will cry out to him more. Uh, the message in, in that psalm is that I have a history with God. He's done some things, and because of that history, I will believe in him, I will trust in him, and I will continue to trust in him. And Israel is being called to faith. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 29, it says, By faith, Israel walked through the sea on dry ground. They're being called to exercise faith. God has placed them in a vulnerable, a vulnerable place. And um, the, the, the sole reason why, uh, God says in verse 3, is for Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know 
that I am the Lord. God is in a relentless pursuit of being known. This is his world, this is his universe. He made it to reflect his beauty and his glory, and sin has corrupted it and, uh, and has graffitied over his glory, and God is in a relentless pursuit to make himself known uh, through all of his creation and through all of his providence and all of his wonders. Uh, in Exodus chapter 9, we read how uh, the word to Pharaoh at that time, uh, God says in Exodus 9, uh, verse uh, 15 and, and 16, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And that's a passage, as you read the book of Exodus and study it, that you have to repeatedly go back to, to inform your reading, that that is what God is up to. Sometimes God places his people in vulnerable situations, and it seems like this is odd, it makes no sense, why would you do that to us? Don't you ever feel that way in your walk with God? That God has put you in a certain place that seems vulnerable to you, it seems odd, it seems irregular, it seems like, well, if I was ruling the world, I wouldn't have done things that way. And we can thank God that you and I are not ruling the world. Because God always comes through for his people. In chapter 15, the, the chapter that recounts this uh, uh, Red Sea crossing and judgment on the Egyptians um, as they have gone through the sea and they're now worshiping God, um, we see in chapter 15, verse 3, it says, the Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. God is a strategist. He knows how to work a situation for the best possible result. And the best possible result for his glory and for him being known. In, um, in Numbers uh, chapter 14, uh, we see, um, it was foreshadowed in our passage, but in Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, it says, uh, but truly as I live, this is the Lord speaking, but truly as I live and all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That God's agenda is that the earth might be filled with the knowledge of his glory just like the waters cover the sea. Are you on board with that agenda? That that is what God is up to all the time. He is always aiming to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory, just like the waters cover the sea. Is that what you are up to and up for? Um, the Bible tells us in a passage that also recounts this particular episode in Israel's history, that whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says no matter what you're doing, just eating, simple eating or drinking, whatever it is, 
Uh, Paul sums up every single aspect of your life. It's to be done for the glory of God. And that, that is to be our, our meditation, our, our, our prayers that we lift up to God moment by moment. God, get glory for yourself in this situation. Bring glory to yourself in this situation. Sometimes not understanding how things are going to map out, how things are going to wind up, but just get glory for yourself. Whatever happens, just bring glory to yourself. We see that in the prayers of Jesus when he was heading to Calvary and he said, if possible, let this cup depart from me, but just nevertheless, just let your will be done. Whatever you want, that's what we should want. And uh, God is that trustworthy, that perfect in his judgment. Um, We see here that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's said twice in this passage that he's going to harden the heart of Pharaoh and and again, we point, we point out that God always hardens people who are already hardened against him. Pharaoh hated God. He despised the Lord. Uh, there, there, is no one, um, there is no one who ever gets, gets condemned by God who says, I really, truly wanted to believe in Jesus, but God, you wouldn't let me do that. that that's, that's something that has never, ever happened. The people who are condemned are the people who hated God. And the Bible even says in Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 9 and 11, it it points out that when God actually brings judgment upon his enemies, they don't get better. They don't wise up. They curse God even more. That the judgment of God exposes even a greater hatred for God in them. And so God is righteous in all of his actions in this passage, um, wherever, wherever the Lord has placed you, He means for you to be located there so that you would seek Him and trust Him. He is faithful. He deserves your trust. Some people say, trust me, I'm a doctor. Trust me, I'm a pastor. You can believe me. Well, we often find we can't. But with God, it's different. You can trust God. You can depend on him no matter what. It says in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 17, verses uh, 26 and and 27, uh, it says, it says there, "And, and he that is God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God has placed you where you are geographically, and he caused you to be alive at this particular moment for a reason. It says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That is what God wants. He has put you where you are, when you are, so that you would seek him and find him and trust him and live for him. And, and so, so what we, one of the things that comes out of this passage is that, that Israel was told this by Moses, what God was up to. They didn't know exactly how God was going to get glory over Pharaoh, but they, they, they got the memo through Moses about what God was up to. And it says in the end of verse 4 that they did so. They, they stationed themselves 
right next to the, the sea, and they would be facing the, uh, the Egyptian army when they came. Why on earth would God do something like that? Because God wanted them to see something that was going to blow them away. And um, often that's the case with us. And so we should uh, settle ourselves with uh, the attitude that, God, I just want you to glorify your name through me by any means necessary. No matter what happens, just bring glory to yourself. Because God deserves that kind of, that kind of devotion because he's proven himself worthy. Uh, and this requires faith in God. And it requires faithfulness to Christ and commitment to his agenda to bring glory to himself. We do not exist in this world to bring glory to ourselves. We exist to bring glory to God. And um, that has to be a settled conviction in our heart. God help it to be a settled conviction in our heart that the reason why we are on this earth is that through us God would glorify himself. He would make a name for himself that through us God would become famous. May that be a settled conviction in our hearts by the grace of God. Look at what um, the Apostle Paul said in, in similar circumstances. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it's a verse we looked at several weeks ago. This is what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 16 uh, in verses 8 and 9. Uh, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Now, if you stop there, it seems like a great thing. A wide door is open, I'm going to stay here? Duh, obviously you will. But then he goes on to say, and there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. Now, if I were Paul, I would say, well, why don't you go where there are not many adversaries, where they're simply worshiping God and praising God and just have a great time. But Paul uh, knew, and, and you and I need to know and be reminded, we already know this, but we need to be reminded that where there are adversaries to God, where there is darkness in the world, that's where the light needs to shine. That's where God's people need to go. That's where they need to be so that they can shine the light. But here, in Israel's case, they needed to see something from God. And oftentimes we look for something from God. Uh, they weren't really asking for anything, but God was going to show them something. When God aims to show you something, don't pontificate and self-righteously say, a filthy and adulterous generation seeks a sign, Lord. That's what happened with Ahaz. He messed up when God promised to give him a sign. And he says, oh, no, I won't ask God for a sign. But God wanted to give him one. Um, this is not a signs and wonders sermon, okay, just so you know. But sometimes God wants us to see something, and he wanted Israel to see something. And, um, and, he, and he placed them in a vulnerable situation where they had to trust in him in order to um, be delivered. The Apostle Paul, as you may recall, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says that uh, he received a thorn in the flesh and he prayed three times that Jesus would remove it. And Jesus said, I'm not going to remove it because my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. 
And that's a passage that often we don't want to memorize or, or learn experientially because we don't like to be weak, we don't like to be broken because our hearts are often hard. And, uh, but we need to be in a place of weakness and brokenness so that the power of Christ would light upon us. And it's a scary thing. Um, to be in a weak place. It's a scary thing to be in a vulnerable place. It's a scary thing to, to have your personal securities removed and you're left there hanging, as it were, levitating spiritually, wondering what's going to happen. And uh, God, God, God glorifies himself in those circumstances. He demonstrates his power. God loves you. God has proven he has loved you by sending the very best he could possibly send to deal with the worst situation that you could ever find yourself in. He has proven his love for you. And uh, he did that with these people. He delivered them by the blood of the Lamb. And um, he, at this point, has, has every right uh, to, to, to ask of them, trust me, I know what I'm doing, is what God says. Jesus was led to the cross, the most vulnerable place there is in his ministry. He was led there because that was the place where God was going to turn away from him. That was the place where God was going to reject him and forsake him. That was the place of the greatest vulnerability he ever experienced in his earthly life. And the Bible says that he kept entrusting himself to his Father who judges righteously. Jesus entrusted himself. He knew the suffering, the humiliation, the death, the wrath that awaited him, but he set his face unflinchingly towards Jerusalem because he knew his Father's heart. He knew his father loved him. And oh, for a heart like that, a heart that will trust our father when circumstances are vulnerable. Pharaoh pursued Israel, we see in this passage, in order, uh, it says um, in, in verse 5, it's so characteristic of the sinful heart. He says, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Pharaoh pursued Israel to be served by them. That is what this king did. Same thing Satan does. Jesus is the true king. And unlike worldly rulers, uh, he doesn't come, he did not come to lord it over us. He came as a servant. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom, he, to give his life, to yield his life over, that, that we would be servants who are motivated to serve, who have zeal to serve, who have joy in our service, because we have been served the best possible way by the best possible one, and he did it first. He did it first, and he says, look at what I've done for you. You know, how do you respond to grace? How do you respond to the mercies of God? How do you respond to the love of God in Christ Jesus? You respond like Isaiah who, who saw his uncleanliness, who saw how dirty he was, 
And then the angel took a coal and touched his lips and said, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is removed. It's atoned for. It's been wiped out, Isaiah. And so when God said, based on that service God just did for Isaiah, who will go for us? Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. I'll go. God never ever tells you to do anything without saying this is who I am for you and what I have done for you. And based on His person, based on His actions of love and mercy and grace, then He says, respond. Respond to His Lordship, to His love. Respond to Him. Jesus came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We forget God when we're under pressure and temptation is on. We forget often Israel lifted up their eyes, it says, and they beheld um, Pharaoh coming in verse 10. And again, uh, God's word was of no effect to them. You remember when Moses first came down and told Pharaoh, let my people go, and, and things got more difficult. Now you can make bricks without us giving you straw. And they got mad at Moses, and, and, and then the Lord came, gave a word to Moses. I will do this, I will be this, and I will do this. He keeps saying, I will, seven times. And Moses went and told Israel, and they couldn't hear it because of their brokenness and their hard slavery. And the same thing is going on here. God had given a word that I want to get glory over Pharaoh. I want my name to be known. But then when they saw the Egyptian army, they forgot about, let's make God's name known. Let's, let's give God the glory Let's let him get his glory. They just, they, they wax eloquent. It's so amazing how often we forget. It says, they said, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the wilderness to die? What ingratitude. I mean, what kind of attitude is that? The Bible says in the book of Psalms, chapter 106, it explains why they would say such a thing. It says in, in Psalm 106, verse 7, our fathers, when, when they were in Egypt, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. If they had just remembered what God had done, the Bible says, look, at verse, verse 8, it says, they went out defiantly. A word that means high hand. With a high hand they went out. A word that often in Scripture means pride and, and arrogance even. That they went out with a high hand. Maybe they should have gone out with high praise. With high worship. Reminding themselves of what just happened here reminding themselves of the blood of the Lamb that they got saved by, reminding themselves of how God has, has, has triumphed over the gods of Egypt. Instead of going out with a high hand, they should have went out with high praise. Because the psalmist, in contemplating this very episode, says that they did not consider what God did in Egypt. You and I, from this simple passage are called to make a record of what God has done in your life. We hear about preaching the gospel daily to ourselves, and that's something we need to do. 
that we would be mindful as the table reminds us of the love of God for us, of how Jesus has triumphed over Satan. He bound him up at Calvary. And he was raised from the dead with all power and authority. That's not something Jesus is going to get in the future. That's something he has right now. He has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. He reigns right now. He's not waiting to come into some kind of reign. He rules right now. Psalm 110 recounts the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it says that he rules in the midst of his enemies. So Jesus is reigning right now, and he demonstrates his power to rule every single time someone gets converted, blinded by Satan, held captive by Satan, dead in sin, but the word of the gospel Simple preaching, the message about the cross, and all of a sudden they're released from chains, from bondage, from sin, from Satan. Jesus has power, all power, and he exercises, and we need to be people who remind ourselves, who consider what God does, so that when we get beneath, or when we get, like someone said, between the Egyptian army and the deep blue sea, that we don't complain and grumble faithlessly like this? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the wilderness to die? And notice what they said. They said, isn't this what we, isn't this what we told you? We said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Oh, the joy and comforts of slavery. The predictable fruit, food that we get in the morning and the predictable whipping that we get at night. Oh, the joys of slavery, the comforts that therein are. How soon we forget how bad it actually is being a slave of Satan and being a slave of sin. And notice the, the kicker it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What a slap in God's face. Um, You know, one way or another, God is going to be glorified. He's either going to be glorified through your obedience to Him or He's going to be glorified over you like He was of Pharaoh through your disobedience and recalcitrant heart. God is going to be glorified. He's going to be magnified. It's His universe. You know, what the, psalm, what, the, what, the, what the people needed to know, what you and I need to know on a daily basis, is what the psalmist said in Psalm 84, for a day in your courts, just a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And a thousand is a number of of wholeness and completeness, it doesn't mean that a thousand and one days elsewhere might be better than a day in the God's courts. When God says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, if you can found, find hill number 1001, he doesn't own those cattle. But it means it's just a number of totality, a completeness, that one day in God's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. If I just get to spend one day there, it's so much better. You may um, 
recount the, the Hebrew boys, the three Hebrew boys in, in Daniel chapter 3 who were told to bow down at the sound of all of the trumpets and the, the, the musical instruments at Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar, wherever you're from, um, they were told to bow down to his statue and worship him. And, 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 and he said to them, what God is going to deliver you out of my hand? And they, they got right with him. They said, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, you need to know we're not bowing down. And he got really upset about that and, and ordered the, the furnace to be heated seven times, so much so that those who threw them in died from the heat. And then when they went in there, not a, not a hair on their head was singed. And he saw not three people, but he saw four people. And then, then even he was able to say that they yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship a God except their own God that they willingly yielded up their bodies to death rather than serve a false god. That's the type of attitude Israel needed, and that's the type of attitude that comes when you spend time not with a high hand, but with high worship. Um, In the wilderness, Jesus was offered all the world had to offer, all the kingdoms, all the glory of their kingdoms, But instead of bowing and serving a God other than the one true God, he yielded up his body to death on the cross. We despise suffering, humiliation, and sometimes even God's call to believe and have faith. We run after idols and the ease of following the world. But God is a God who never, ever disappoints us. We often have fears of leaving idolatry to serve the one true God. We struggle with a fickle heart. And we need to be settled in remembering and trusting and responding to the grace of God. Like the psalmist, we need to silently ponder in our hearts offering a sacrifice of praise that leads us to trust in the living God. Moses tells this faithless, fearful, complaining people, be silent. Just see and be silent. Because what they had to say wasn't worth listening to. And this is the exact kind of complaining that kept them out of the land. The very thing they feared, dying in the wilderness, is the very thing that happened to them eventually in Numbers 14 because they wouldn't believe, because the Lord said, you despise me. Even after I showed you all these signs, all these wonders, you don't believe. The same thing happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. If you read the gospel according to John, you have a, a, a running table of all these kinds of signs and wonders that Jesus did up to chapter 11. And then it says, in chapter 11 and 12, it says that Jesus still saw that in spite of all his signs, they didn't believe. People didn't believe. And this passage calls us to look up And where there's complaining, we need to close up our mouths. 
be silent. Meditate in our hearts. Consider what God has already done. Consider how amazing God's power is and how amazing His grace is and how amazing His heart of love is for us knowing that God has got you. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly with Him. God is never going to turn His back on you. He's never going to leave you out there by yourself and say, good luck, see you in a few years. That God is with you until the end. And no matter how the enemy charges at you, no matter how hopeless the situation might seem, all God does with Moses is He says, just raise up your staff and divide the sea and walk on dry land. That God is able with the breath of his mouth, and that's what it said, he blew with a mighty east wind, and he opened up the sea. And it was dry land. How amazing that must have been. I don't think anybody here would not want to go back if we could be transported and say, just let me see that happen. But the Bible says that's a shadow. That was a shadow of the substance that you and I have in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus opened up his arms and was nailed to the cross for our sin and for our enemy to be defeated, to be, as it says in Romans 16, 20, to be trampled under our feet. That's what it says. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. We know he did it under Jesus' feet. But it's your feet also who tread on the serpent because of Jesus Christ. He opened up that sea and it was, a, it was a picture of Genesis all over again. You remember how God divided the waters above and the waters below and how He gathered them together and there was dry land that appeared. But you can go through the life of of Israel coming out of bondage and going into the promised land, and you can see it orchestrated in Genesis chapter 1, that what happened was a new creation with with Israel. A new beginning, a new Genesis. A call to faith and submission and, and commitment. Let's look at these verses. Verse 19, Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided." And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch the Lord and the pillar of the fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels, which, which literally says removing their chariot wheels, and um, so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee, 
from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. See, now the the Egyptians are knowing something. They're able to give honor and glory to God, even though it's unwilling on their part. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Every tongue will confess that He's the Lord, either willingly or unwillingly, it's going to happen. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. He shook them off, which shows the power of God over against all of the, all of the army of Egypt. He just shook them off into the sea as if they were nothing. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. It's easy to believe in the Lord when something like this happens. And um, we see here that God removed the protection of, of Israel. This particular episode is recounted in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, especially verses 1 through 4, and and these actions demonstrate God's supreme control, His absolute protection, and His total care for His people. If you look at chapter 15, verse 13, it says there, uh, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. It's God's steadfast love, His covenant commitment. He loves His people. And He demonstrates it. God is no different with you. He loves you. The Egyptians bow the knee unwillingly. Paul talks about this very episode And he says that with respect to Israel, and we know their history, that these people who came through the Red Sea from 20 years old and upward, all of them died in the wilderness because they despised the Lord. Even though they experienced this, they had gone through the sea. Moses and and, and Paul says that they they were all under the cloud, under the authority of the Lord. They were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea. They all identified with Moses. They believed at that moment and walked through the sea and they saw amazing things, walls of water on either side and dry land where there once was a sea. They all experienced it. They experienced the beauty and bounty of the Lord, but then they died in the wilderness. That's really sad. And what Paul teaches us is that You can experience baptism. You can eat the supper. 
because it says they ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. And they, ate from, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. This table points to Christ. That they experienced and they participated in these things of God. And they died in the wilderness as rebels. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 10 not to give ourselves to idolatry. That it's so easy to experience spiritual things but then still fall into idolatry. Idolatry is coveting. It's wanting more. That God is somehow not enough. That God is good. I want God, but I also want other stuff, and I think that my life is not really fulfilled unless I have that too. That God somehow is not enough for me. That somehow Jesus is not sufficient. That was the, the, the condemnation of, of the Judaizers in, in, in the churches in Galatia. Is that they said, Jesus is great, but he's not enough. You've got to do some other stuff. And Paul cursed them. He opened the letter with a cursing, a malediction because they chucked the gospel out the window and said it's not sufficient. And idolatry is that way. Paul, Paul and the author of the Hebrews are clear that unless we have faith, a faith fixation on Jesus and his love for us, a fixation on Jesus loves me, this I know. We simply will not have the spiritual stamina to live a life of love for him. If we're not fixated on the cross, fixated on the love of Christ for us, we will not have the endurance to be between the sea and the army and be able to come out in the end fruitful in fellowship with God. His love for us, we simply need to be focused on it, fixated on it. And this sort of commitment comes from, from exhortation from God's people. See to it that there's not a sinful, unbelieving heart in any of you that turns away from the living God, but exhort one another every day while it is called today, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have come to share in Christ if we hold our original, our original confidence firm to the end. It's one thing to believe in Jesus for a season, but then when, when the heat is on, we stress out. We run to other things. We don't run to Christ. We don't run and pray. We don't run to praise. We don't run to God's people and say, hey, pray for me. I'm going through something here. I need help. But we have all kinds of ways of medicating ourselves when we're struggling and when we're going through suffering, all kinds of ways of seeking pleasure, seeking some kind of affirmation apart from the body of Christ, apart from the Word of God, apart from worshiping God, apart from calling on the name of the Lord. They desired evil, it says in 1 Corinthians 10. They were idolaters, coveters. They were syncretistic. They, they, they got up and worshipped, and they, in the morning, it says in Exodus 32, and they got up and offered burnt offerings to the Lord, and then they went and played with sexual sin. They were syncretistic. You know, synergism is a good thing when you talk about diet and exercise, but when it comes to faith and matters of faith, syncretism is not a good thing. 
It's either all of Jesus or, or not none of Jesus. Can't mix Jesus up with something else. They were sexually immoral. Our society is sexually immoral. Our churches are sexually immoral. You know, the people who look at porn outside of church almost matches the people in the church who look at porn. It's a sad testimony when the, when the Bible says let there not even be a hint of sexual sin. That's what happened with these people. That's why these people who saw these sights, who came through the sea, died in the wilderness. They tested Christ. They were impatient. They were slanderers. It says here, they spoke against the Lord. Do you ever speak against the Lord? Ever do that? You ever get suspicious? Why are you doing this to me, God? Speak suspiciously against him. Speak negatively about what he's doing. Why is this happening to me? They spoke against the Lord. They spoke against the Lord's leaders. And that obviously means when the Lord's leaders were leading according to the Lord, which Moses was doing. Why did you bring us out to die in the wilderness? Notice how they did that. They cried to the Lord, it says, but then they negatively spoke about Moses who was leading them, obviously according to the Lord. Um, I wouldn't be so bold to say that about myself, but Moses is leading, I hope I am, but Moses was leading people according to the Lord. And they cried out to the Lord. It seems like, oh, they're going to pray. But then they say, was it because there were no graves in Egypt? It would have been better for us to die, to serve the Egyptians, than die here in the wilderness. They spoke against the Lord. They spoke against his strategy to bring glory to himself by putting them in a vulnerable place. They spoke against that. They didn't like that. Why do you always have me on my knees, Lord? Why do I always have to pray so much? Why do I always have to run back to Jesus? They spoke against the Lord. We have to be careful. They forgot God on purpose. They made no effort to remember him. They were discontent. It says that this, this same group of people wound up complaining about manna. They called it worthless food, even though it pointed to Christ. We have to be careful. And, and the book of 1 Corinthians 10, you read that passage, it says that these things were written down. The reason why chapter 14 is there in your Bible, it says it's an example to you. It's to instruct you not to be like them. Well, how on earth could you not be like them when you have seen what they've done and you see the same thing going on in your heart so often? There's only one way not to be like them. Would you be free from being an idolater and being coveting? There's only one way, and it's summed up in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation. You know the passage. There's no temptation that has taken you, that has seized you, but such is common to man. You don't get heavier temptations than anybody else. 
But in the midst of all of your temptations and all of your struggles, God is faithful. God is faithful. And perhaps some of the reason why we can not fall into idolatry is that when we fall into temptation, may that be the first thing that comes out of our mouth. God, you're faithful right now. You're faithful. I'm being tempted, but you're faithful. And the Bible says that he will never allow you to be tempted above your ability. If you can only hold a certain amount of weight in temptation, God will never, ever ask you to carry more. He tailor-makes it. He intervenes. He brings, allows temptation to come. He doesn't tempt you, but he, bring, he allows it to happen to temper you, to make you stronger, not to tamper with you. God is not tampering with you. That's something that Satan does. God is using it to temper you. There's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. God is faithful. He will never allow you to be tempted above your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way to escape. There's always a way to escape that he provides. We don't always take it, but there's always a door. And Jesus is the way. Jesus is always the way, the truth and the life. And the Bible says that when we're tempted, Jesus comes to our aid. He's able to come to our aid. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. When you suffer, when you're tempted, Jesus is coming to your aid. That's his business. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace and we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's a promise of God. That's a promise from a God who cannot lie. That if you individually, corporately run to Jesus, run to the throne of grace, there is mercy to be had. There is grace to be given to all who will boldly approach in faith and say, God, you promised grace to me right now in the midst of temptation. You promised mercy. I don't even want to be here. My heart is sinning. Sometimes you have to say that to God. I know this is wrong. I don't want to be in your face praying. I'd rather be sinning, but something about your spirit has moved me to pray. And I'm asking you to change my heart, to change my desire. Isn't that what God told Cain? He said, if you do the right thing, Cain, your whole attitude will change. Sin is crouching at the door, Cain. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. And the way you master it is by going to the Master, by going to Jesus, by going to the One who has dealt with the full arsenal of Satan and didn't flinch didn't move, didn't budge. He just said, it is written. Get away from me, Satan. He was able to do that, and he did it so he could sympathize with anything and everything you go through. And when you're between the deep blue sea and an army and an enemy running at you, you can get on your knees and you can say, Jesus, I need you. You know what I'm going through. You can sympathize with what I, what I feel right now when the enemy is on you. You can cry out to Him, and He'll come through for you. He won't leave you hanging. He tempers you, 
He makes you stronger, and he comes through with power unheard of, unfelt before. You can trust him. He's up to good. Satan is up to no good. Jesus is up to only good. But if you look at him with suspicion, it doesn't work. You fall into the same trap these people fell into. And later, the same attitude that they had right here before the Red Sea is what kept them out of the promised land. That attitude they had here is why they died in the wilderness. They said the same thing there that they said here, we need to go back to Egypt. Egypt never got out of their system because they never were able to give it all to Jesus and just say, look, I need you, Jesus. I can't do this by myself. May that be our attitude. The Lord overcomes all our contenders for the glory to be believed. His glory is worth believing. His glory revealed at Calvary when Jesus died on the cross and overcame your sin, overcame uh, the, the wrath of God for you, overcame Satan for you. The evil one, it says in 1 John, cannot touch you. He can't take control of your life anymore. He can't hold you captive to do his will anymore. You've been released. Yes, he harasses. Yes, he tempts. Yes, he runs, runs around looking for people to devour. But you've got power from the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ to cry out on the name of the Lord and stand on the promises of God by which you can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in this world caused by evil desires albeit imperfectly. We're not perfect people. We're not going to reach sinless perfection, but the orientation in your life needs to be. The orientation in my life needs to be we run to Jesus. That's what we do. When we're between a rock and a hard place, we run to Jesus. We cry out to him. And when you train your heart in that direction, Discipline your heart in that direction. That becomes more of a second nature response. Let's pray to God. Let's ask him for the strength to endure and not to be faithless in the midst of trial. Our Father, in Christ's name, we thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you that he always comes through. Father, we thank you that he's with us even now Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ, he's a great high priest. He's the great high priest. He has gone through the heavens. He's your son, and he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He can sympathize with every single thing we're going through where we're weak. And Father, thank you so much that there is a throne. There's a place that, that rules everything. And in Christ, it's a throne of grace. And that throne of grace issues mercy and grace to everybody who looks outside of themselves to Jesus and runs to him for help. And Father, I pray that that would be the, the orientation of our life. It would be the way we do life, that we are people who boldly approach the throne of grace, constantly receiving new mercies every day, abounding grace that's sufficient for our situation. Father, help us, humble us to be that way. In Jesus' name, amen.